You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. Welcome to a very special new series on The James Altucher Show. Today, we start off with a very special episode. It's part of a series of episodes I did with my good friend, AJ Jacobs. You've heard AJ on here so many times. He wrote uh, Drop Dead Healthy, uh, The Know-It-All, where he read the Encyclopedia Britannica from A to Z. He wrote my year of The Year of Living Biblically. Wrote a ton of books, and he has a new upcoming book about puzzles that we'll have him on. But now we have a, a, a new series of episodes that we did together. The theme of these episodes, good or bad. Every episode will take on a big topic and try to figure out if it's good for the world or if it's bad for the world. Like, for instance, monogamy, good or bad, or DNA tests, or gambling, or whatever. You'll see all the things we have. Right, or uh, the Olympics, or this is AJ talking, by the way. Uh, cars and kids. I have kids. I love my kids, but you know, they're downsides. And that's. They're downsides. They're downsides. <laughs> they hope they're not listening. The point of the podcast, of the, you know, the, the specials is that everything has costs and benefits and pros and cons, upsides and downsides. And we need to be thinking more about the nuances instead of an absolute, like, 
you know, this is terrible or this is good. No, it's it's complicated. They're grays. You know, it's such a good point, AJ, because, you know, when you go on AJ, when you go on Twitter or Facebook now, you get like kind of corralled into these opinion ghettos. It's like black and white. Mm -hmm. Everybody's on one side or everybody's on the other side. Immigration's the worst thing ever or immigration is the best thing ever. So, but the world is filled with grays, filled with nuances and subtleties and adults or even kids used to be educated about this, but now it's like, uh, uh, if you believe in one thing, you have to believe in the next 50 things in your particular group or else you're canceled. So I want a world with grays. And that's the only way we're going to actually find solutions when we see the complexity of life. Totally. I agree. And uh, well, it's interesting because I try to apply that thinking to everything. So we should apply it to ourselves because there are pros and cons to doing uh, a podcast episode on pros and cons. Like, I do believe that the good or bad has good and bad. And I can tell you the pros are what we talked about. Everything, like, it's a, an, an, a love letter to nuances and, and thinking through things uh, in a complex way. But then there's the bad side, I think. There's something, you ever hear of both-sidedism? People say, no. oh, you're just, oh, yeah, this is when you have a news report about, say, evolution, and they feel compelled to say, well, there is the other side. Let's talk to some creationists. And that I don't like. I don't like both sidism because I think it's fake. It's sort of a fake pro and con. And you're, you're having these false equivalencies uh, because they're ignoring science. And I think what we want to do is, is we want to follow the science whatever it says so if the science says here are the pros and here are the cons that's what we're going to do and also we're interested in solutions like you said uh, so when we look at the pros and cons of things we want to say how can we fix those cons yeah exactly and i think that's it's really interesting because there's a fine line like the idea of science for instance is to be skeptical i mean all new science replaces the old science so, you know, when, when, what's his name? Uh, uh, the guy who figured out that washing hands and germ theory actually cures diseases in the 1800s. Oh, there were a couple, Lister and Semmelweis. Were Semmelweis, uh, yeah. I love that guy. And like he was put in a mental asylum for thinking this. And, and he died, I think he died of a, a, an infection too, which is the ultimate horrible irony. I know. And, and nobody listened to him. So, so the whole thing is, is like you want to know what are not everything is like proven science or proven theory uh particularly when you get into more social sciences like economics or psychology we really the more we know the less we know is what we figure out but you know so so it is good to respect the nuances and so look aj how about i think the first episode should be about gambling good or bad and then People could tell us if they like this uh, sub-series. Yeah, we hope that the uh, the good of this outweighs the bad. But yeah, let's talk gambling. Excellent. AJ, have you ever gambled? I have. You I spent have. time in a casino? Yep, not a lot, but some. What did you gamble on? Uh, blackjack. And uh, yeah, I tried a little of everything. I sucked at everything. Well, well, okay, blackjack, what else? craps 
slot machine. Baccarat was too complicated, so not that. So, so let me just say, I almost think what you did shouldn't be called gambling, huh? But should be called, and I, I don't mean offense by this, but should be called uh, stupidity. <laughs> You're enough. not stupid, but the problem is all the main, all the games you just mentioned. It's not gambling because there's a guarantee that over time you will lose more than you win on all of those games. The only game in a casino where you have a chance to win to win is poker, uh, which is why for for decades until the the rise of poker TV, uh, poker wasn't encouraged. Poker was hardly played in any casinos, actually. But blackjack, the odds are best case, you know. 49 point whatever percent it's not 50 percent craps is much worse baccarat that's like the fact that james bond plays that shows how stupid he is like baccarat's <laughs> the worst game the only game that might be worse in a casino than baccarat is uh what's it called pai gao the chinese uh style of poker that has like horrible odds and yet it's, uh, people play it constantly so you so it's not really gambling when you don't when you actually know the outcome which is that you don't have a chance except in that one moment where you're taking a risk. So I guess you could say in that one moment where it feels like gambling, you could say that's a gamble, but the odds are against you. And I love that James Bond is an idiot. I mean, maybe though, is it like glamorous? Like that's how he gets his Bond girls by playing? Like it sounds fancier than like, if he were at the slot machine, <laughs> that would just be sad. Right, So, mm. but the, the only way to measure, like let's say gambling, I, I would argue gambling is betting on an outcome that's unknown yes but the skill of a gam- a gambling should have some skill in it so that a skilled gambler wins more than an un w- w- that wins more than an unskilled gambler and a skilled gambler should end up net positive in the long run so yes a skilled blackjack p- a player will win more than an unskilled blackjack player but over time both will lose money making it kind of a useless endeavor right now, i'll just tell you one can i tell you one thing about blackjack though heck yeah so so uh there was this guy ed thorpe uh uh who in the 1960s he developed the math behind card counting so he figured out if that if you kept track of the tens jacks queens kings and aces in the deck uh, and you made your decisions accordingly, so you 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 bet it, it would inform you on whether to bet high, whether to bet low, and so on. Like if you were looking for a, a, a ten, and you knew most of the tens had already been dealt out, uh, then you would bet lower. If you knew that most of the tens hadn't been uh, dealt out, you would bet higher. And he ended up being a net winner in blackjack, and they started kicking him out of casinos because they didn't. He was winning too much. And so then he built, because of his the math he developed, he built, and this is in the 1960s, he built the first wearable computer. He built a computer, I believe he had fit it on inside his pants near his feet and then had a wire going up to his ear that would basically, you know, he would, he would tap his feet whenever like a king or a queen or a jack came up. And then, he, then like an earpiece would inform him when it was safe to bet big, when it was safe to bet, when it was not safe to bet big and so on. Now, using that experience, eventually he stopped playing blackjack. He used the same ideas to move into the investing in the stock markets, and he created uh, one of the most successful 
uh, uh, hedge funds in history. I th- there was a book uh, about him or by him, actually. It's a great book about investing and gambling. Uh, I think it was called A Man for All Markets. And I forget the name of his book on blackjack, but it was the seminal book on blackjack for, for decades. So gambling made him an innovator. Like it's a little, it's a, like an, uh, it, it helps yeah. with. Uh... Gambling was a safe way for him to try out different ideas in money management, uh, math, computing and then ultimately in investing right and you could argue the same things happened in in you know back in the 1700s or 1600s the whole reason the entire field of probability and statistics was developed was to help gamblers and right. many of those initial statisticians moved from gambling into insurance because if you think about it what is insurance like let's take life insurance as an example you pay Let's say, I'm just going to make a number up. Let's say you pay $2,000 a month to get a million dollars of life insurance so that uh, when you die, your beneficiary gets a million dollars. You're making a bet that you're not, you're making a bet actually that you're going to die pretty quickly (laughs) so that you only pay $1,000 and you die a month later and that your beneficiary gets a million dollars right away. The insurance company is making the bet that you're not going to die until you give them well north of a million dollars in value. So all insur- 100% of the insurance industry is is basically a series of bets. It's called insurance. It's called annuities. They have all these fancy names for different types of insurance policies. Like there was something called viaticals where people who were diagnosed with AIDS would, would sell off their life insurance. All of these things are fancy words for bets. And the people who took the bets were usually had very complicated mathematical models to take all of the risk out of the equation. If they made a large series of bets, they knew they would not have risk. Got it. Um, let me just say one thing about the card counting, because to me, that is the craziest part of a casino, is that you're not allowed to card count. Because it's not like you're... You're cheating. You're just playing the game well. You're not using x-ray glasses. You're just using math and probabilities to make the best move. So banning it, to me, is like saying you can play chess, but you are you can't think four moves ahead. You can only think two moves ahead. Well, that, that's, that's, that's a great point. And casinos, their point is um, we don't care. We're allowed to <laughs> refuse service. Yeah. So they'll just kick out people. But the other thing is, they might encourage card. They sell books on card counting now because the average person is not. First off, they they they've changed the way they shuffle the decks. They've changed the way they vary um, how the cards are dealt. So it's become almost impossible to actually. It's actually become impossible for an individual to card count cards. So they're happy if you if you walk in there and say, "Hey, I'm going to count cards," they'll say. Go right up to the most expensive uh, table if you want, sir. Uh, free drinks because they know you're going to probably fail and lose more money than you win by card counting. But where it gets uh, interesting is now they're um, famously, as documented by Ben Re- Mesrick in the movie 21, and and uh, I forgot the book that he wrote that it was based on, but uh, uh, groups of very smart people could uh, card count and work in collusion with each other and casino and it's harder for casinos to track that that's happening and that's a little bit more of a the fight that the casino is battling right now let's back up and talk about uh, 
this is good or bad, as we know, uh, and gambling is the topic. Is it is it the scourge on society, or is it a wonderful way to entertain yourself? Uh, and 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 I I wouldn't say though. Correct me for for this. When we're looking at the goods and the bads, I wouldn't say the good is only related to entertainment, um, but I would say the bad. Yes, you can argue is is it a scourge? Is it a net negative on society versus right? Uh, uh, being a good on society. Well, I think, well, let's dive into the good because, and you touched on this before, but to me, the number one good thing that gambling does is it teaches you how to think. Yes. How, but what do you mean specifically by that? Well, uh, I think you had on your podcast, you had uh, Annie Duke, the professional poker player. Yeah, I've had Annie Duke, uh, Maria Konnikova, who has now turned into a semi-professional on poker, uh, I've had on, well, I've had on many investors. So if you count that, it's gambling, but let's, you know what, for the sake of this, let's just say gambling games and sports betting, the traditional things we think of as gambling is, is gambling. I think the, the good or the industries that are created out of gambling, like insurance and, and the stock markets and the commodities markets and, and so on, which actually fuel society and innovation and prosperity. And that's all based on these fundamentals in gambling. But let's say for this sake that uh, gambling is just what you would play in a casino or games of chance where there's some luck involved or what's called proposition bets where, you know, I might bet you like, oh, you know, so-and-so is going to be president in 2020. Right. And I think uh, Annie Duke and, and Marie, is it Marie Konnikova? Yeah. I love their books uh, because the thesis is that Poker can make you a better decision maker, and uh, and poker is like life. It's a game of incomplete information and luck, and that we should think in our life like poker players. We should think in probabilities. We should, and I try to do this. It drives my wife crazy because she'll be like, when are you going to be home? Well, there's a 60% chance I'll be home at 3 o'clock. There's a 20% chance I'll be home at 4 o'clock, but it's a better way to live because you are able to take into account that life is not certain. It's not black and white, and you can plan for all these probabilities. Yeah, I think I think that's so interesting to understand that not every decision is a one or a zero, that there's a gray area in the middle, and that includes in almost every type of decision-making you could make. Should, should a child go to college in today's day and age? There's no clear answer. Like There's a huge ongoing national debate about this right now, and I would say there's no clear answer and you have to be comfortable with the gray area. And and playing a game like poker almost lets you practice living in that gray area, that area of not knowing. I, I don't know your cards until you turn them over. So I have to keep calm and make the best decisions I can make given what I know about you, given I know about how you've bet so far, given the cards in my hand, given the probabilities that the cards uh i want will show up and uh given given those statistics how much money i could potentially win uh and also managing my money so if i have a small stack of money i'll make different decisions than if i have a large stack of money so there's lots of aspects of decision making that happen in a single hand of poker yeah and it's actually it's it's the thesis of our podcast is that nothing is certain everything is it has shades of gray. So we're very much in the 
in the same mindset as poker players. Yeah, and uh, can I tell you? So I, I, I one time had this very weird period in my life where I had just sold a company. This was 1998, and uh, I started playing poker. I played poker literally for 365 straight days. I played in this uh, several places. I played in this club downtown called the Mayfair Club on 26th Street. I played in the Diamond Club on, I think it was on 21st Street. Uh, I played in Atlantic City. I even had a house in Atlantic City. I would go down there and play every weekend. <laughs> and then I'd go to, I went to Las Vegas on my birthday. I played there. I played in Las Vegas a bunch of times. So I was, I played 365 straight nights in a row from 8 p.m. to 4 in the morning every single night. And and that was like your full-time job? Yeah, I was obsessed with it. I read every book. This was in 1998, 1999. So did you po- play Toby Maguire? I did not play Toby Maguire. But I played many people who were later on like world champions of poker and so on. And uh there wasn't as many it wasn't as popular then because it got popular when um there was the kind of the hand camera on underneath the tables mm. and it became popular on ESPN watching poker but it wasn't yet on tv and so i'd get a hold of these vhs tapes and try to study the best players i read there wasn't as many books there was maybe 20 decent books on poker maybe less i read every book i could on poker and i just played every day and i talked to players better than me every single day just to to learn and i would say it for six months i lost money and then for six months i made money so it's probably overall it was a net break even, but I think I learned how to be pretty good by the by the end, at least enough to to know the fundamentals at a better than amateur level. And it was it was fascinating because by the way, it's not just about when you said like when you say oh, there's a thing in probabilities. There's a sixty percent chance I'll be home by this time, but forty percent not. There's a, a flip side to that, which is that uh, in poker, let's say there's a hundred percent chance you could win a hand, but you only win a dollar. But you have to bet a hundred dollars to to win the one dollar may not be such a good bet. Uh, you know, a lot of times you'll make a bet where the odds are against you, but if you win, you win much more. Than, high risk, high reward. Yeah. So, so for instance, let's say you have a thirty three percent chance of making your hand. So, people who know Texas Hold'em, if if I'm just going to get in the de- in the weeds for a second, if 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 the f- if the flop comes out and you need one more card for a flush, you have a one in three chance of making your flush in the hand. Now, the only reason you would bet, though, is if you have more than three times the amount you could win than what you're betting. You should make that bet all the time. Even though the odds are still you're going to lose, if you consistently make that bet, then over time, you will make more money then you lose. You'll make right. you'll make net amount of money, even though the odds are always against you on every individual bet. So thinking like that too, in terms of what you could win, you know, what's the expected value of a situation? That happens in investing too. You don't want to, you, you know, you want to take into account what's the upside, what's the downside, and what are, and what are the odds of winning either side. So, do you think that year of playing poker was an overall good thing or a bad thing? I think it was an overall good thing for me. And I wish I had continued it actually, uh, because first off, I had worked so hard building up and selling this company. I was just like stressed out of my mind for years and years and years. And then suddenly, every night, I would go and the doors would open at 8 p.m. and I'd go into this 
you know, underground and there's like three sets of locked doors you had to get through and video cameras <laughs> everywhere because it was illegal in New York. And uh, you go into this room and you sit around a table with eight other people. And I had this weird camaraderie that I never had before. Everyone's just, for the whole night, everyone's just joking around and insulting each other in funny ways. And I had never had that before. Kind of like just a group of friends making fun of each other, which I always wanted i always aspired to have that in a weird way and even though the game itself is we're all actually lying to each other and trying to steal money from each other the it was these became my friends for a year for better or for worse it's not the best set of friends to have but it was the only time in my life that i had this kind of weird camaraderie that had nothing to do with my work life like, i'm your you, friend i know friend, but, but here we've been friends for a long time but we've oh and and this is what i like about my life now is I work with all of my friends. Like we're doing this podcast together. It's not like we're we're in the coal mines together. We're having a fun time <laughs> doing a podcast. Like it's it's fun to do things with your friends, right? Um, but this time playing poker was the only time I really separated out work and uh uh you know play, and 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 it did teach me so much about. I learned so much, and I worked hard at it. I learned so much about probability, statistics, money management which didn't help me later on, unfortunately, decision-making. <laughs> but here's why I wish I continued with it. Somebody at one point told me, why are you playing poker every night? You could be starting a new company and making a lot of money. And that was really the beginning of the end for me. Like I started new companies. I, I started investing in companies instead of, instead of winning or losing one or $2,000 a night, I started investing huge amounts of money when I wasn't yet, I didn't yet have any of the skills needed to be a good investor. Uh, I wasn't really taking my skills from poker into investing, which I should have. And I didn't start doing that until much later. And if I had stayed playing poker in like 1988, 1999, by the time TV poker became popular in the mid 00s, like 2005, 2006, I would have had my 10,000 hours in. I would have been a much better poker player. And I was already good when I stopped, but I would have been much better five years later when it was popular on ESPN. And I think that would have been a better career choice than repeatedly losing all of my money over and over again. <laughs> so you want to be in an alternate universe where you stayed as a poker and you were like Phil Ivey? Uh, yeah. that That's a better that life? life? If, I, if now I could have all the other good things in my life, plus I would have stayed with it, then that would have been, I love games. And that was a poker, poker, poker versus chess, backgammon, go. Uh, I think poker is the most interesting because of the high element of chance, even versus backgammon, which has an element of chance and the high element of psychology, uh, the more interesting role statistics and probability play. I think poker is the best game in the world. That's it. So you would, because I would not like to be a, playing poker for like 10 hours a day that would just make me want to like you know and it's really boring in the because face. yeah most this is unlike the what you see in the movies when you see poker most hands should not be played like you're basically if you're playing poker accurately in a full table of people like let's say eight or nine people you should play one hand an hour maybe that's a, that is really interesting well you touched on two of the good, I, I thought we would start with the goods, and you touch, you basically touched on the two of the big ones that I thought of, which is it teaches you how to think, and it's fun. You know, you got camaraderie out of it, and to me, uh, if you go into a casino, 
saying that you it, it's sort of like going to a Broadway show. You know you're going to lose $100 or whatever your budget is, but you're doing it for fun. You're going right. to meet. That, that's that's not, okay. That's not a, a bet because let, let's put it in the terminology of a bet. You're you're betting $100 that you're going to have a good time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and But if you like musicals in general bet. and you like uh, the story of Hamilton and you've heard uh, from many people that Hamilton's the best musical ever, you've mitigated the risk of your bet, so it's not much of a bet. <laughs> right. I love that. And... Uh, and I think it depends on the the game you're playing. Like poker, you can you can kibitz with the other players. Like slot machines, to me, <laughs> like someone sitting in front of a slot machine for eight hours is the most depressing thing uh, in the world. It just seems that like when you go, two things depress me when I go to Atlantic City is when you see all of the old people. Uh, uh, particularly old people for some reason, just sitting at slot machines for hours at a time by themselves. And then the other thing, particularly at like four in the morning, when you see the huge line at the ATM machine, <laughs> that's oh, very depressing. That is that is the definition of depressing. Well, it's interesting you say that because uh, I looked up to see if gambling is overall fun or not for most people. And there was a Yale study from 2004, and it's just one study, but it said that with older adults, so 65 and older, moderate gambling is associated with better health, which is crazy, but the possible reasons include increased activity, socialization, like you were talking about, and cognitive stimulation. Uh, The huge caveat is that for this only older adults, for younger people, uh, it's linked to high rates of alcoholism depression, bankruptcy, and incarceration, which are not fun. Right, not fun. which, which, by the way, I saw at the poker clubs I would, pl- I would play at. The younger people viewed it as, hey, this is maybe a way I can make a living. And it's very hard, particularly when you're the first year or two, you're learning it, and depending on how good you are at learning something, you might not make a living. You might lose a lot of money, which is the, you know, now you have to make more money to try to get better at poker so you could make a living at it. Like somehow there's poker's been glamorized as a way to make money and make a living, but very few people could, could do it. And uh, particularly it's so competitive now, it's very it's very hard to do it. Also, you're not moving around as a younger person. A younger person needs to move around more. You're not moving around that much. An older person is moving around. Plus an older person has the maturity and hopefully the bankroll in the bank they can play without as much stress. So the focus is on the camaraderie and the cognitive stimulation. One thing about the cognitive stimulation that I left out is whenever you make a poker bet, bet, again, you're trying to reduce the risk as much as possible. Just like when I bet on having a good, I'm going to have a good time at the musical Hamilton. When I make a bet at poker, I want to make sure my bet has the right odds. So I mentioned before, what's the expected upside if my bet works out and figuring that in with the probabilities. But there's another thing too. You get really good at analyzing the people around you. Like, what if I see that every time AJ gets dealt two really good cards, he puts his hand over his mouth, you know, and you start to notice things about other people. You start to notice how they move when they're excited as opposed to when they're uh, pretending or bluffing or whatever. Uh, So you learn, you you really learn insights into, into people and how to think about people as well. So yeah, you learn probability and psychology. Like, what were the tells? Like, uh, what are real tells? Like, real, I've real seen them in movies. The, the, fir- the first real tell is 
um, not not like in the movies where if someone like breaks an Oreo cookie, that means they have a great hand. <laughs> uh, the first real tell is if you see how aggressively someone bets, mm-hmm. you know, you could think, are they bluffing or they have a real hand? But over time you learn that their aggression when they're bluffing is slightly different than their aggression when they have a good hand. Like uh, what? They might move a little faster. They might bet a little bit higher. Still, still almost seems equally aggressive, but there's just a behavior slightly changes. And then, you know, uh oh, you could sometimes know exactly what hand they have and you get out. Um, or you can see that they're bluffing. If they just hesitate for a second, some people, now the good players will hesitate for a second on purpose to mm. make you think they're bluffing when they're not, but some players, and then you get to know that as well. Did you some, have a tell that you, a fake tell? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I. I think I have to be careful about putting my hands on my mouth or leaning forward when I have a good hand. Like as if I'm suddenly taking the hand seriously, as if I'm not taking the hand seriously at all. Uh, or sometimes I have to not act too blasé when I have a really good hand. Uh, but now, are you are you like playing a game where you're telling people that if you put your hand over your mouth, you have a good hand? So now you can use that when you're bluffing. But potentially, I I remember one time I was playing, uh, and there was a really good player who would always play at this club, the Mayfair Club, and he once told me I had a tell, and I said, "Can you tell me what my tell is?" And he said, "For a thousand dollars, I'll tell you what your tell is." And and I considered it because. First off, we were making or losing that much every hour, and uh, it could have been worth it. Like, but everything has a price at the poor. It wasn't unreasonable for him to ask that. Like, nobody's going to be generous. That's in, hilarious in that sense. And I learned a lot from this guy how to kind of dominate the table psychologically, so that everybody defers to you to sort of set the tone of the table. And uh, you know, kind of dominating the table psychologically is also important, so people don't want to bet against you. Uh, and there's it's lots of things you learn about psychology, probability. So in that sense, and, and, and again, by the way, those are skills that are useful in investing, in insurance, uh, in, in many industries. Like, oh, if I buy this cheaper quality cloth, will I still s- sell as many clothes? You know, everything's a bet ultimately right uh, uh, in, in life. And, and, and poker is kind of this microcosm world where you could you could safely practice all these skills i love that as long as you don't take it too seriously because i do i did see alcoholics i did see people with gambling addiction i saw people who lost their jobs as like lawyers and other kinds of professionals because they just got too addicted to poker right they'd get depressed when they had a losing streak you're always gonna have a losing streak and you have to that's another great thing you learn in gambling is how to handle the inevitable losing streak because it's a game of chance no matter how good you are you're gonna have a losing streak and how did you handle it uh you have to kind of you, you the, the tricky the 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 clever way is when you win to tell yourself not to have good emotions so that with this way when you lose you won't have bad emotions like it's almost like stoicism yeah Kind of, but the 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 sad matter is when you lose, it does feel a lot worse than <laughs> the, the the goodness it feels when you win, which is why people get addicted. It's kind of like the loss aversion cognitive bias. Mm. Well, that's why I don't particularly love gambling. Is for me the pain of losing a hundred dollars outweighs the joy of winning a hundred dollars. Yeah, that that's always going to be true, unfortunately. But then, why do people get addicted to gambling? Because that because when you win. 
And if you win uh, uh, enough, if you have those days where you have a good winning streak and you win big and you start to feel the elements, remember, it's not 100% chance. If it's 100% chance, then it's just stupid. If, if, if you have those days where you sense, oh, I have a little bit of skill and the other person is less skilled and now I'm winning, you start to think, oh, this instead of going to my nine to five cubicle job, I could just do whatever I want during the day and play play this gambling game at night and become a millionaire. So I I've known people who've played games of chance who who made millions or tens of millions. Can I tell you one story? Yeah, I love stories. So I had this Although friend, we know they have problems. <laughs> I, I I have this friend, uh Falafel. His name is Falafel. That's <laughs> real what we name? call them. Okay. Yeah. Well no, it's not his real name. Uh, but if you Google falafel, you'll actually find them uh, when I describe the story. Uh, we used to play in, I moved to New York city in 1994, but even before then I would, whenever I visited the city, I'd go to Washington square park and play chess. And falafel was this homeless guy who literally he would, he was, he li- I think he slept on the ground. Like he had leaves all over and dirt and stuff like that. And we would play chess and we would gamble on chess. It's not a huge gambling game. We play gamble for a dollar or two a game which was all that I could afford to gamble at that time. And then one point, at one point, he disappeared for like six months. And everybody's like, where's Flawful? Where's Flawful? And when he kind of came back into the scene, apparently he had, in that six months, miraculously, seriously studied the game of backgammon and won in this huge game against all these Wall Street guys uh, a, a bankroll of about six hundred thousand dollars in a in a six month period, and so suddenly he had this. He was no longer a falafel. We called him falafel because he was so poor and homeless, and he wasn't a very good chess player. Somebody would always have to go at lunchtime and get him a falafel sandwich. He only liked falafel sandwiches, so we called him falafel. And then he 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 got this huge bankroll. He went to Las Vegas. From what I hear, he lost it all betting on sports. Oof. Then he went to this huge game in Iceland won it all back and then some. Now he lives in Israel, still playing backgammon and running a bunch of poker rooms in Israel. But he is the best player in the world of backgammon right now as ranked by his move. The way he plays is most correlated with how a com- computer plays. And computer plays a computer plays backgammon much better than humans. Falafel is the human closest to how computers play. And he ended up making millions from backgammon, he was, I don't know if he was ever the world champion, but he was the best in the world. There's documentaries about him now. I used to play this guy every day when he was homeless in the park. And I know several stories like that, like gamblers, that kind of gambling personality either dies in obscurity and alcoholism and depression or becomes a falafel. <laughs> That's what the, did you ever play him in backgammon? He always wanted to. I would never play him in backgammon. I did play very good play. I did myself study backgammon for a while and got pretty good, just like I got pretty good at poker, but I never got to that level. Well, I know you play Stephen Dubner in backgammon. Yeah, so Stephen and, St- and I are, like right now, we're, we're in a, a huge match. Uh, uh, we started playing before he, he wrote Freakonomics. We started playing in 2002 or 2003. We've been pl- playing this ongoing match since then. And we're almost pretty much dead even at this point. Like, what's the score? I think we're like five matches to five matches, something like that. It's Wait, like really, five, you've only played five matches? Well, we're playing each 17? one up to 101 points. And sometimes we don't get together that that frequently, depending on what we're each doing. So you've played yeah. hundreds of matches, but only... Hundreds of games. Hundreds but, of games. But, you know, it, it worked out to be about 10 matches so far. That's hilarious. Uh, 
Because, yeah, backgammon, I just don't think of as, I think of it as a kid's game, but I guess not. So in, in no, no, in my, in my building that I live in now, um, there's a former world backgammon champion who switched to poker when poker got more exciting. Poker is more of a game. Backgammon is a gambling game because of the dice and the gambling, and the gambling cube, uh, the doubling cube. Um, poker, though, there's more, more element of chance. And so a skilled risk, a skilled gambler will do better in poker than in backgammon even. And uh, this guy, Eric Seidel, switched from being the world backgammon champion to probably the highest cash winner. I mean, probably tens of millions or more in poker. And he teaches, he's the one who gives lessons to our friend Maria Konnikova, who's now a semi-professional poker player. I'm doing this um, project, uh, this book, and for it, I I had to study this painting by Hieronymus Bosch, the um, the Garden of Earthly Delights, and it has this depiction of hell that is so disturbing it's like you know he was on acid and it it seems like you know there are these demons fornicating and there are a bunch of people playing backgammon like it's hilarious like this is the most evil thing backgammon and fornicating yeah because if you ever you ever play backgammon and you're winning you're winning you're winning you're winning the game looks like it's so easy you're winning and then just at the right point he he makes the one roll that there was a one out of 36 chance <laughs> he would make and you're crushed and you've just gambled everything on the game because it was you were so uh, one out of 36 chance how is he ever going to make that roll and it just happens and that truly does feel like hell <laughs> <laughs> so it's accurate uh can i tell you my one sad gambling story yes because i have not had a gambling life like you but I, I did in college. I wanted to bet on the Kentucky Derby. So uh, I was in Rhode Island, but they had OTB, you know, like off track betting. Um, so my friend and I called information, which you could do back then. And we got the phone number and call OTB. And uh, uh, the guy's like, oh, yeah, come down. The race is about to start. You got to come down right now. So we get in the car. We speed down there. We pull up and it's a mattress store called off track betting with two D's. <laughs> So the guy was just being a dick and like... <laughs> so you didn't bet on the Kentucky Derby? No, and, and we didn't buy a mattress either. It was just a, a sad... So that was did, you ever, did you ever bet on a horse? I, I have bet. I have been to the racetrack a couple of times. I, I, I can't... I'm terrible. Why, are you a horse better? No, no, I've never bet on a horse in my life. But there are hedge funds, investors, who basically, they have software where they load up all the data of every horse and how they do against every other horse and how they do whether there's muddy conditions or dry conditions or what the temperature is so they get as much data about every horse as possible and then given a new race with a bunch of horses and new weather conditions and so on they run it through their their software and the software makes a prediction which horse will win and these hedge funds that have done this have actually been very successful and have made a lot of money so there are you could do this with sports betting you could do this with horse racing if you have software on your side, just like Ed Thorpe with counting cars and blackjack, if you have software on your side and with sports betting, it's legal to have software on your side, uh, you could you could make a lot of money. Right. Actually, I read about that. Did you ever read the book, Everybody Lies? No. Oh, this Who guy, you, you should get him on your podcast. Um, I'm having... I'm having lunch with him tomorrow, but I forget his name. Wait, wait. I, I think I met him by accident in a cafe. Look up his name. I'm pretty right. sure I met him. And I told him i wanted to have him on my podcast and you I should never he's fantastic I, yes that's the man what's his name seth stevens davidovitz and yeah yeah i i i literally met him 
in um, the Housing Works Bookstore Cafe on um, Colby Street uh, downtown. And we started talking, and his book was about to come out. And I said, oh, you have to come on my podcast. This sounds fascinating. And I never did. So tell Highly me. Highly recommend him. I think he'd be a great guest. And, and one of the, it's all about how big data can uh, – how – sorry. Uh, it's all about big data and how to use it to manipulate people. And one of the chapters is about this guy who used big data in, in racetrack, in horse gambling. And he, uh, he tried to find every data point for all the horses he could, thousands of data points. He finally found a correlation between the size of the horse's left ventricle in its heart and how well it did. And it was such a close correlation that it turned out that he could make millions. And he started this company, and he's like a gazillionaire. Yeah, so, so again, big data is a kind of gambling, right? Because right. how do you find patterns in the data that nobody else mm -hmm. found before? Now you have an information advantage. You could use that information advantage to make a bet. Right. That encourages innovation and in big data. Right. There you go. All right, so we are still ostensibly on the good parts of gambling. So we've got teaches you how to think, uh, encourages innovation. It's good for camaraderie. And another one I want to add is it could save the world. Tell me. All right, it's a little bit of a, an overstatement there. But uh, you know about prediction markets. Yes. Right, so these are um, basically you're gambling on current events. Like, you know, is, is North Korea going to continue uh, making bombs? Is China going to raise tariffs? And they could be long-term, they could be short-term, but they're almost like stock markets for current events. And, and I like how we're not using the word, we're not using any gambling terminology. It almost sounds like a stock market, right? Right. Like prediction markets, you know, you know, you know, making predictions about current events. What's the odds that North Korea is going to invade or send a bomb to South Korea? Uh, but the reality is it's just betting. It's just betting because it's putting money on an uncertain event, which right. is the definition of gambling. I have to say Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit 
was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? Zip Recruiter. Zip Recruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Like, what's an example of something that, uh, you know, other than elections, because there's been a lot of prediction markets about elections, but what's, what's another example of something that you might find in a prediction market? Uh, all sorts of things. It could be, when are we going to go below 50% for fossil fuels, for instance? Um, well, you know, it could be, um, when is, uh, you know, are we, when is the next pandemic coming? It could be something uh, like that. And 
I don't know if you've had him on your podcast, Philip Tetlock. Do you know no, Philip? I, I know he is. I, I've not had him on. Fantastic. Love that guy. He wrote the book Super Forecasters. And uh, and he he talked about how to become better at predicting the future. And and there are a lot of interesting heuristics, but one of them is put money on it. Like when people put money on their predictions, they do more research, they're more thoughtful about it. And these prediction markets, if you get the right group of super forecasters, they are generally better than alleged lifetime experts in in you know China affairs. They're better at predicting what's gonna happen. So his argument is politicians should pay attention to these prediction markets like this instead of getting a bunch of you know old men who have studied this all their lives. Look at the prediction market and that will tell you what to happen and then you can act on that. Well, it's interesting because this, this is kind of a debate that occasionally happens in journalism. Let's say you have a journalist who's writing about Apple you mm-hmm. know, and what's the next iPhone going to look like. Who's going to have more knowledge, the journalist or an investor who, let's say, has invested a million dollars in Apple stock? The person who's invested a million dollars in Apple stock has probably done a lot more research, a lot more work, has looked for every clue of what the next iPhone will look like, whereas the journalist is just going to... It's easy for him to write an article and say, oh, it's probably going to have, you know, a, a microphone on both sides, cameras on both sides, you know, because he, he has no, this is this is Nassim Taleb has the phrase for this skin in the game. If you don't have skin in the game, you're going to, meaning. He's going to get paid either way. Right, right. If he's so, wrong. So, so if you don't have skin in the game, you only have upside. And if you're wrong, you have no downside. But skin in the game means you're, you're. Your reward and your punishment is equal to your your ability to analyze the situation. So a great example might be: let's say we each uh, we each bet each other. Like I'll bet you a hundred dollars. You do a thousand push-ups a day for the next thirty days, and you say yes. Now you have skin in the game to be healthier, right? <laughs> so so this is even beyond prediction markets, but just like individual. Like if you always have skin in the game with everything you can do to make yourself healthier, you're and and a dollar, uh, you know, a dollar amount is is a, probably a better metric than any other amount because it's you know we all understand it. Then that then that's you know making bets like that can improve your health very directly. Gambling can make you healthier. I love it. Can we do this right now? Like. Because if we say it on the air, I can't pull out. Like what I wanna I wanna make a I wanna gamble on my health. Okay. How about we each do a hundred dollars in that in a month that every day for the next month we do a hundred push ups a day. A hundred, okay. Doesn't have to be hundred push ups in. in a row, but just throughout a twenty four hour period, you've done every twenty four hour period for the next month, you and I both do a hundred dollars. I'm in. Now I now I usually do push-ups on my bathroom sink because you don't have to go as low. Is that okay? No, it has to be. <laughs> what about two hundred? Has to be flat on the, on the floor, sink. and it has to be two inches, no more than two inches between your nose on and the floor. Oh, and it has to be a hard floor. I hate going down. And your the back floor. has to be straight. All right, all right, all right. I'm in. I think this will be fun. All right, I trust you. All I don't. Right. I don't. If you don't trust me, Robin will keep track. I don't trust uh, you, <laughs> and I am installing a camera in your. In your house. And and the ideal situation is that neither of us will lose money. We'll each give each other $100. There you go. Um, all right. So I have one other positive for gambling, which is that it's an excellent way for governments to raise money. And uh, this has a long history. France and England had lotteries to raise money in the 16th century. And this is my favorite. Alexander Hamilton wanted to do this thing that's 
a lottery mixed with insurance. So it's called a tontine, and everyone puts in money, and then the last person surviving gets the most money. So it's like a really dark death pool, but you win if you survive. And the government maybe takes a a, a fee off that to yeah, organize exactly. it? Yeah, it's like lottery. The, the government takes a is cut. It, is it illegal to do that? Like, why don't people do that now? Uh, like, like for instance, why don't you start a business doing that? That sounds auntie. like a great idea. All right, I'm in. I don't know. I'd have to look up whether it's illegal or not. I okay. mean, there are there Hold are on, incentives. There are incentives to kill the other people. So it's not like a. a uh, yes, but mm. maybe there's other kinds of tontines. Like, uh, I don't know. Let's see, tontine is that how it's spelled? Mm. T o n t i n e. It's a French word. Um, an annuity shared by subscribers to a loan or common fund. Uh, increases as you have more subscribers and the last survivor enjoys the whole income. Um, so is it illegal? I like this. This um, is another good business idea. It is illegal. Uh, um, let me see. Uh, not if Alexander Hamilton Over 100 has years it. ago, it was legal. And at their peak around the turn of the century... Tontines represented nearly two-thirds of the American insurance market, holding about 7.5% of all national wealth. Uh, Nine million tontine policies active in 1905 when there were only 18 million households. Uh, Tontines became so popular that historians credit them for single-handedly underwriting the ascendance of the American insurance industry. Um, But a, a spectacular set of scandals wiped it out. I'm curious what those scandals are. It doesn't quite say and uh uh the longer you live the larger your profits uh, but you're profiting off of people's deaths and so somehow or other i guess if i keep reading i'll realize that they're illegal but i think they're illegal but i don't know there might be some way around that i if it was legal i would certainly consider that as a business a viable business to start all right let's get let's do a startup let's go to silicon valley tontine an app i wonder if you could do like an offshore company that that does it. <laughs> I love it. All right, I'm in. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's patriotic. Alexander Hamilton wanted to do it, but he also wanted child labor. So he's you know not- how you can do it though is you can do it as a uh, massive set of life and everybody takes out a life insurance policy where the beneficiary is constantly changed to um, every time someone dies to be the <laughs> remaining people until uh, and it only pays off when. The last person, the second the last person dies. Done. I love it. So we'll figure this out. All right. We'll Let's figure it out. And I'm going to live longer because I'm going to do more push-ups than you. Probably. Um, so. Uh, and I'm older than you. Am I older than you? How old are you? No, we're like, I'm like two months older than you. I was born in March 1968. When I was you? born in January. I'm two months older than oh, you. Oh, you so are. I'm All right. die first. So I'm definitely. Odds are I'm going to die first. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's an excellent way for governments to raise money. Uh, the United States raised, uh, the states raised two, eight, I'm sorry. The states raised $85 billion from lotteries, which, um, which hopefully went to fund police parks, education, uh, We'll talk about later. It's got a huge downside, the regressive tax element. But overall, lotteries are very efficient. They may not be their efficient way to to raise money. You know what I love about buying a lottery ticket? What? I I actually, I've bought plenty of lottery tickets in my lifetime. And I almost, I don't think I've ever actually looked to see if I won or lost. (laughs) Because when I spent a dollar to buy a lottery ticket, 
just for a dollar for the next couple of hours, I get to dream. What if I win? And I'm basically paying for the dream. I know I'm probably not going to win. I don't even check to see if I win or lose. I just assume I lose, but I get to pay for that dream. That's lovely. Yes. There you go. So it is, that's, that's more proof gambling is good because you get that joy. You get the two, two hours of joy. If we stop right here, gambling is, is the greatest <laughs> thing to hit, to hit, hit culture, society, everything. Uh, exactly. We're buying tickets to Hamilton. We're getting smarter. We're becoming millionaires. Oh, we're getting wonderful. healthier. We're, we're, and then we're going to get rich before we die. <laughs> it is a beautiful thing. Let's just cut it off. And the government will get wealthy. Uh, well, yes, you're right. We should talk about the bad because there are just a few bad things about it. I mean, we can start since we're on lotteries. I mean, they are terrible. Uh, this uh, this guy I know named Derek Thompson, who's a great journalist, he wrote a piece for The Atlantic that's called Lotteries, America's $70 billion shame. Uh First of all, Americans spend more money on lotteries than on books, video games, tickets to movies, and sporting events combined. That's crazy wow. talk. Um, That's amazing. I didn't know that. And the and the problem is the uh, the people who buy the most lottery tickets the the sales rise with the poverty level. So if the uh, poorer people buy more lottery tickets. Because wealthy people play lotteries for fun, like you. You know, it's like, it's a fun thing. But low-income people play it as a prayer against poverty. So it's it's hugely unfair. It's hugely regressive. Yeah, I guess I can't uh, I can't argue with that. I think lotteries <laughs> are really bad. I think I think most gambling is regressive mm. because, like, again, most games in a casino. We focused on poker earlier, but games like blackjack, baccarat, like all the all the games you play, are. Uh, <laughs> Are are mostly played by you know they take slot machines. You don't you rarely see like a billionaire going up to a slot machine, mm. but you do see lots of poor people playing slot machines. And net net net, they're gonna lose money if they play all night. They're gonna lose money. They'll yeah. seem for a long time like they're breaking even, but they're gonna lose money. Well, can I tell you? There's a great book on just this called Addiction by Design by a sociologist or anthropologist named Natasha Dow Shul, and it's all about the uh, slot machines and how sorry it's all about how evil slot machines are and how they are designed to keep your addiction going they give out just enough money so that you get that intermittent reward and they are they think about the lights the sounds they test the sounds to make sure they're like the most pleasing sounds uh the chair they make as comfortable as possible. Uh, people wear adult diapers because they just want to sit in front of these slot machines to get that dopamine fix. And the way they do it, it's very brilliant. Nowadays, they have like 100 lines and you can win. So you pay a dollar, you're going to win on some of those lines. It may just be three lines and you get three cents, but you're always going to win every time you play the slot machine. What do you, you mean get, they have hundreds of lines? Well, when slot machines started, you just had that one line. And if you got three cherries, you win. Now they're video, and there are 100 lines that you can win, and some of them are diagonal. So every time you play, every time you pull that lever, you are going to win. But you're going to win less than what you put in. But your brain doesn't know that. Your brain is like, oh, I'm winning. So you're slowly losing money over time, but you feel like you're winning. How, how often will you win more than the dollar? Oh, apparently very rarely 
uh, but you're getting that dopamine fix, so you don't care. Right. That's so interesting. Oh, so, so they're basically playing exactly on just ne the neurochemicals for addiction. Oh yeah. You know, like cocaine is uh, attaches itself to the dopamine receptors mm -hmm. to kind of trigger that dopamine, and that's why people get addicted to it. Yeah. It's the same thing happening. I mean, it is truly evil. It's like if the, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think, if the vodka, uh, if the vodka industry somehow like got an IV into people's arms and just shot it in there every but hour. It's related because when you're sitting there at a slot machine in a casino, most casinos give alcohol for free. And so you could also, this is, you know, a lot of gambling is related to alcoholism mm. and other addictions because, uh, you, you you know you you're just drinking all day for free you're you're sitting there gambling all day all these addictions are related to each other you know nevada prostitution's legal so i don't know of any other state where it's legal but nevada is the biggest gambling state in the united states uh so it, well you told me about you, foxwood what was that oh yeah so so uh, I used to be involved with a mental health facility that helped alcoholics, and it was right next to Foxwoods. So if you want to build a, a mental health facility that treats addictions, it's not such a bad idea to put it uh, right next to a casino. So because the people from the casino would come to the facility or, or the other way? Eventually, addicts can't, you know, eventually every addict hits bottom at some point and has to be treated. You know, you can't. You can't just drink alcohol all the time and not come to a point where you say to yourself, that's too much. Right. Or, or, or unless you die, because you're just going to keep going lower and lower and lower if it's an addiction. Right. And, you know, there's there's health aspects of being an alcoholic. You get the shakes and, and so on, and you have to drink more and more until you can't even physically drink enough if you're enough of an alcoholic. Yeah. Um, and, you know, gam there's a Gamblers Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, Debtors Anonymous, and all these things are are connected. Right. It's definitely, I mean, physically an addiction. It is, I think it is in the DM. Oh, shit. What's the name of that thing called? DSM. Yeah. It's in is the it DS in the DSM addiction? Oh, yeah. It's officially been moved into the addict. Gambling addiction is an official addiction. You know, and the other thing is, we mentioned earlier a positive was the camaraderie. Like for me, I was like always so happy to be around this group of people that were, I could joke around with and have, have fun and, and so on. But at the same time, a, like I mentioned, you do realize they're, 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 while we're all joking around, we're all lying to each other and trying to take each other's money, which is not necessarily aspects of friendship. And there's that saying, you're the average of the five people you spend your time with. I can pretty much guarantee that if, if you're the average of the five people you spend your time with and you spend most of your day gambling, probably not going to turn out so well. <laughs> because <laughs> most of the gamblers I know, even the ones who are successful gamblers, they are not the best people in 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 their lives. In general, you want to be with people who are trying to improve their lives, not people who are making unqualified bets and 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 losing money and being addicted to things because right. gambling is so related to addiction. Uh, so so while I think there's these net positives about thinking, about having skin in the game, about learning psychology, probability, and so on, and even some aspects of camaraderie and it's it, the game like features are fun, you know. You mentioned the negative effects on society, which is both the the regressive tax of something like a lottery. Um, there's also the uh, addiction addic addiction possibilities, which are rampant. Like uh, there's a great book I encourage people to read. It's a novel, Bob the Gambler, by uh, Frederick uh, Bartleney. 
uh, which is uh, an excellent book about a guy who slips into more and more of a gambling addiction. It's kind of a horror story at the end. And, but that said, like you mentioned with prediction markets, and like we were talking about with the skin in the game, you know, gambling is the underpinnings of all of these stock markets, all of the commodity markets, all of the uh, uh, insurance markets. Uh, you know, so many things are gambling. So having practicing the elements of gambling in a safe setting, like let's say poker or backgammon or the bet we just made about pushups, is a reasonable way to get better at other areas of life. As long as you consciously make that translation, like I did not consciously make the translation at the skills I learned from poker to investing, at least initially. And I was a very poor investor in the beginning as a result. It was only when I brought in these things I learned from poker that I started to get better at these other aspects of, of my life. So how did you use your poker skills in investing? Uh, two ways, really really three ways, but let's say uh, the most important thing is is risk management. So in every kind of gambling where you have a chance to win, like po poker, how would you manage your risk? There's many ways to manage your risk. One is if you have a great hand, you can feel confident about investing a little bit more. If you have a bad hand, you invest a little bit less unless you think you have a chance of bluffing. So that's one way to take out risk is you only bet when the odds are on your side. Uh, another way to take out risk is understanding the people around you. If they all see, if they all are clearly broadcasting that they're bluffing, and you and you know they're not so good, so that your read on them is correct, you could feel more. Con Again, you take you're taking risk out, so you could bet more. Another way to take risk out is to just in general not invest a lot. So to understand, you know, you there's there's a saying in poker: you should always have a hundred bets in front of you. So. Uh, make sure you have enough money in front of you that you can make a hundred bets and don't bet, you know, don't bet the house on something where you only have a 60% chance of winning. If you do that eventually pretty quickly, you're going to lose the whole house. So, so everything is about mitigating risk. So in investing, how do you mitigate risk? Well, let's say one way I can do it is, uh, let's say I'm considering investing in a company and I see Warren Buffett the best investor in the world, also just invested in that company. One way I mitigate risk is I say to myself, well, Warren Buffett is clearly a far superior investor to me. If it's good enough for him, it's not like I'm going to run into him at a party and say, Warren, how could you have been so stupid to invest in that <laughs> company? I would never do that because he knows what he's doing. He's got a billion people who have probably researched it for him. So I could invest knowing I've mitigated the risk a little bit. I could also mitigate risk by reducing the amount I invest, no matter how high my confidence level is. I don't want to bet the house on something that isn't 100, nothing's 100% chance. So you never want to, you always want to keep your investments really small and diversify. That's another way to mitigate risk is diversify. You always want to make, as they say in poker, you always want to make sure you stay in the game. And it's the same thing with investing. You always want to keep your investments small enough that they don't stress out your future thinking and that you get to stay in the game. And also there's the psychology of it. Like, let's say I'm investing in a private company. I get to look at the founders of the company. Do I think that they have the characteristics of someone who's going to build a successful company and, and sell it? So there's kind of analyzing psychologically the same way you do might do around a, a poker table. Then there's other characters. Let's, let's say you're investing in a drug. Um, the drug has a certain probability of passing 
the FDA trials that every drug needs to pass. So that's a that's purely a gamble because there there's a chance no matter how good the drug is, there's a chance the FDA just might say no for some obscure reason that you have no clue why. So you have to understand, well, who are the scientists who are making this drug? Did they have prior success rate with another drug? Who are the investors backing this? Have they backed other successful th- drugs that have gone through the FDA? How has the FDA you viewed passing drugs for this particular disease? Do they Is this disease cr- on their critical list that they fast track drugs uh, and, and so on? So you figure, you always, risk mitigation is the most important thing I learned. And this is true for entrepreneurship also. People think, entrepreneurs and investors take risks. It's actually the exact opposite. They mitigate risks. So for instance, let's take our bet of about push-ups. Uh, if I just said to you, AJ, I want you to do 100 push-ups over the next month. And you said, yes. Uh, I, You may do the push-ups, but you may not. But if I say, uh, I'll give you $100 if you do, I, I actually think there's a higher probability that you'll do the the push-ups. So so I've mitigated the risk that you're not going to do the push-ups by offer by having skin in the game by offering money. I mean, the other way we could have done it is you give me a hundred dollars if if you if you don't do the maybe that's the way we should structure it is you give me a hundred dollars mm, like if you don't do the push-ups and I'll give you a hundred dollars if I don't do the push-ups. But that's how we mitigate the risk is by having skin in the game. So entrepreneur, what I learned from poker is that entrepreneurs and investors don't take risks, which is the common mythology of entrepreneurs. Everybody thinks an entrepreneur is a swashbuckling risk taker, but a good entrepreneur reduces as much risk as possible, just like a good gambler. Like I mentioned with the horse racing, you could just go up to the window and bet on a horse, or you can load in 40 years of data about racing and write software to, to make the best probable bet in in at the track and that's how you've mitigated risk so the best gamblers make take risk out of the equation the best investors and entrepreneurs take risk out of the equation that's fantastic look at that news you can use yeah see i think it's uh again that's why i regret also not immediately taking what i learned from poker and applying it to other areas of my life i should have immediately made the metaphor from from poker and risk mitigation to other areas and I didn't do it. Well, you did it now. No, I do it. Yeah. You're fine. I try to. Um, I have one last uh, drawback for for gambling and then I'm ready to make my final uh, judgment. Gambling, I think, encourages corruption and cruelty. Maybe those are two separate issues, but they both start with C, so I thought I'd lump them together. Um, but corruption, of course, in sports because... There's so much money at stake. The temptation is to throw the game. You had the Black Sox scandal uh, in 1919 where where the Chicago White Sox intentionally lost so that they could uh, collect the money. And this is the Supreme Court just ruled that states are allowed to rule um, to legalize gambling uh, on sports. So this is going to become huge. It's just gambling sports gambling is going to get bigger and bigger and the risk for corruption will get greater and greater although so corruption is is bad and unethical like let's say you're you're i want to hear you defend corruption i'm excited (laughs) i'm going to defend it um (laughs) but the, the problem with it is uh is that let's say you're betting on i don't know 
the New York Giants to win a game. And there's a great player on the New York Giants that everybody admires and he's got a great record and so on. And so that's why you're betting that the Giants are going to win this game. And let's say he, that great player, specifically throws the game so he could win millions of dollars on his own personal bet. That is obviously corrupt. But I don't think it should be illegal. I think if you're going to make gambling illegal, then part of understanding the risk that you're taking, like the government shouldn't protect you. If you're going to gamble, you're gambling. So the government shouldn't protect you. You're also making a bet that nobody's going to be corrupt on the other side. And so I have to say to myself, you know, that guy is an admirable guy and he doesn't want to ruin his Hall of Fame potential track record or, or winning, you know, getting a great, a better contract if his team wins the Super Bowl. And uh, I'm betting that this team is not going to be uh, corrupt. That is hilarious. It reminds me of some people argue that performance enhancing drugs should be legal. Like, why shouldn't? Are you on that side? A hundred percent. Because I think actually the fact that performance enhancing drugs. So obviously this is related to the same issue. So I'll bet on somebody winning the Tour de France, and then it turns out, oh my gosh, Lance Armstrong took performance-enhancing drugs, and that ruins the whole thing. But here's the problem, is that everybody was saying nobody was taking performance-enhancing drugs. And so kids would spend their entire lives getting good at bicycle racing. They'd, They'd race in high school, they'd race in college, they're finally at that professional level, they're joining a team that's gonna play in the Tour de France, and then guess what? They're approached by the team and said, listen, now we gotta tell you the truth, everybody on the team is taking performance enhancing drugs. And since you devoted your entire life to this, you can't back out now. There's no other career for you. You're going to have to start taking these drugs that could hurt your health. But if you want to win, if you want to continue this career that you've worked 20 years at, you're going to have to start doing it also. And, and, you know, I think the fact so start it, them juicing when they're like 11 or 12. No, start being <laughs> transparent so that kids can, and their parents can make the decisions about whether this is something they want to do with their lives. And that maybe there's innovations so that performance-enhancing drugs don't have as many side effects. And again, look, you know, many things we do are performance-enhancing. The problem with the drugs are that they could have bad side effects, and that they're and that it's not transparent what's happening. Right. So um, if you legalize it, then it becomes transparent. Then you know what you're up against. Then you know what is involved in a career in this. Then there's more research can be put into reducing the side effects and and gamblers and people backing different teams or institutions in sports could could make more informed choices. I I am opposed to performance enhancing drugs overall, but I'll give two um arguments on your side. One, they're going to the sports are going to be just better to watch. I mean, can you imagine like if everyone who played baseball was juicing, like the home runs would be out of the stadium. Um, And number two, uh, what was my second point? Um, Oh, number two, sports is all about skill, both mental and physical. So you have to be smart to know which uh, drugs to take. Like that is like you read about these people and they were balancing like 18 But, but they had drugs. they had medical help. I mean, they had great doctors. Helping. Well, you have great trainers too. It's all yeah. about you have to choose. The- but I think you need a third, which is a lot of kids love baseball, will spend their entire youth playing baseball, will go to play college baseball. And then the only thing that they're trained to do career-wise is to play pro baseball. 
if they get the opportunity to get, I don't know, drafted or whatever into baseball. But then suddenly they realize their heroes were taking these performance enhancing drugs. And it's it's and if they want to match the 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 numbers of their heroes, they're gonna have to start doing it too. But they didn't know that. So I think the lack of transparency you can't have transparency if it's illegal. And so you have to make them legal to have transparency and you need transparency so kids don't fool themselves. I think too many children are being hurt by the fact that performance-enhancing drugs used by their idols are illegal. I and love so, it. so even if these drugs are bad and bad for the sport, they're worse for kids, the fact that it's illegal. That's a whole other episode. I think we got to do an episode on performance-enhancing drugs. Um, well, the last last point is, you know, I said it encourages corruption and cruelty. And I really do think there's something about gambling that lowers our inhibitions and we will gamble on just the worst thing. It brings out the worst in humanity. So uh, for hundreds of years in England, uh, every town had a bear baiting ring. Do you, do you know what? bear? No. It was a, a very popular. A bear was tied to a stake. And trained dogs were set upon it and see who would kill the bear. Would the bear kill the dogs or the dog? And there were other variations like um, a pony with an ape tied to its back. And then they'd set the dogs on the pony-ape hybrid. It was freaking crazy. Uh, And that's just one example of many of, you know, now we still have cockfighting and dogfighting. It just, I think, um, there's something about gambling that makes us want to bet on anything. Yeah, I I agree, particularly when in the in the addictive aspect of it. Uh, so yeah, um, but 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 again, everything in life's a gamble. Taking the broadest possible definition of gambling. So at some po- at some point, there's a line, right? I mean, there has. I wonder if it's like you know, assault weapons. We've got to ban some forms of gambling and allow others. Like I would never want to gamble poker. I mean, I would never want to uh, forbid poker. Because I think it's it's an interesting game. It teaches you a lot of life skills. What does sitting at a slot machine in a stupor teach you? Nothing. That's just like literally a drug that is going to suck out your soul and suck out your money. Yeah, and it, and it is kind of a regressive tax also against people. So you, in, in your case, in what you're saying is you would gamble anything where over time the, ha- the odds are on the side of the house as opposed to the individual. Yeah, definitely. I think cause <laughs> like there's no way to to mitigate the risk enough with a slot machine that you have a chance of winning in the long run. Well, what if yeah, what if it's the casinos are like you pay $5 to get in and that's how they make their money and once you're in, you get to keep whatever you win. And there's no house the house does not get any advantage. Yeah, but you know, uh then cuz all the casinos will go out of business. But if it's 50-50 overall, they would they would be okay. They, they, they cost so much to make and to maintain. Like think of a normal skyscraper and then think of like, I don't know, the MGM Grand Casino in Las Vegas. It's such a more comp. There's, there's shows. They pay, spend tens of millions on shows that are free. Right. The alcohol is all free. All right. You're uh, right. Now they can start idea. charging for those things. But all these things are just less fun. They're going to have less patrons. And right. particularly once they start charging and, you know, their whole business model goes away, like Las Vegas goes away, which maybe that's what we're suggesting. But, <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's already kind of going away because of online gambling. That's right. the thing, too, is gambling's moved online hmm. and offshore. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know the solution. I, it's a, it's an interesting one. I would say, yeah, some forms should be legal and some short forms should be illegal. I think people should learn their own capabilities of addiction and learn learn the elements of gambling so they don't the bad sides don't take advantage of them and then learn how to take those skills and apply them to more productive things. I I don't think I don't think any rules will work because people will continue gambling. It's like a natural thing in our brain to want to gamble and and having skin in the game. Maybe, maybe. Well, We'll put it on a prediction market and see what happens. We'll yeah, see. gambling, good or bad. Yeah. Prediction market. Prediction market. Will gambling be illegal in 50 years? Let's put that on the prediction market. All right. Excellent. Thank you, James. Thank you, AJ. See you next time. You oh, next and if you have any comments about gambling or any ideas for topics for good or bad, tweet us at GOBpod on a little-known website called Twitter. <laughs> <laughs>